Good day and welcome to episode 11 of Raise a Glass, the podcast devoted to the exploration of worldly libations. My name is Robert Sickler and I'm your host. And today I have the wonderful Tony Zezas with me. Tony's been with Harvest Wines for six years here in Denver, Colorado, and currently has 5.5 out of six tests beneath his belt with the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. Also has aspirations to become a, ma a master of wine and is a renowned sherry slinger and enabler of all things Venice. In his humble words, he's just a simple guy trying to elevate the art of consumption and look damn good at it. Tony, how are you? Doing very well, Robert. Thank you for uh, such a proper introduction. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, thanks for taking some time to hang out and uh, enjoy some good wine and some good food and uh, great conversation before and after this, this little podcast episode here. Um, let's go ahead and jump right in to question number one. Today, you're benevolently bestowing our palates with a rather intriguing assortment of natural wines. Natural wines, as I understand them, can fall into the biodynamic or organic category, are committed to sustainable practices, typically hand-picked, fermented with natural or spontaneous yeasts, and they're bottled, unfiltered, unrefined, with no added tannins, acids, or stabilizers. What am I missing? Well, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, first and foremost, all natural wine needs to start in the vineyard. All, all natural wine needs to be grown. Um, and the main production of the entire process is, is what they put, the, the amount of effort that they put into the vineyard. So uh, I just finished a paper for WSET as we uh, discussed the Wine and Spirits Education Trust and their uh, diploma level. And in that paper, I argued that there are five key facets to any natural wine. First being what you touched on, that um, all wine is made in the vineyard. It must have a baseline of organic with a preference towards biodynamic viticulture practices. Um, second, little to no zero uh, sulfur added. Um, and always parts less than 50 parts per million. Uh, I do need to make note that France just passed legislation that vin, uh, vin, uh, vin Norte Natural is going to, has as a set uh, legal definition finally, and that is 30 parts per million uh, for sulfur, which is, which is fantastic. Um, third, uh, no use of technology or controlled fermentation during fermentation process. Uh, third, fourth, indigenous yeast fermentation, which is, we'll definitely dive into that uh, later. And finally, little to no fining or filtration. Basically, the whole conversation here is nothing is added to the wine and nothing is removed from the wine. And when you're working with, you know, still varietals or uh, still wines and, you know, fun varietals, you can, you can easily achieve that. Um, it must be known that there are certain types of wines that will never, ever have the ability of being in this natural process or this natural category. And it's some of the wines that I love most. You know, it's, it's Tokai, it's mm. sweet wines, it's, you know, Trockenbeeren Ausschleses, it's Eisnein, it's, you know, some of these wines that have uh, Muscatel Dorado from, you know, Cipiona. Uh, it's some of these wines that have to be sterile filtered and have to have sulfur at higher levels because sugar with if, if any type of little microbe or bacteria gets in the bottle and starts a re-fermentation process, you're left with a really fucked up wine. And, you know, that's nobody wants that. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. 
in, in courtesy and consideration of the listeners out there who may not be um, as wine savvy as some of us, could you compare and contrast a little bit organic versus biodynamic? I think everybody knows organic, but could you talk about biodynamic just because I think even for the people who are relatively familiar with it, it's such a lovely, a lovely way of making wine and it, it, it's, it's just super cool. So. Well, biodynamic first and foremost uh, is a mentality and a philosophy of farming. Uh, it was started by the writings of Rudolf Steiner in 1924. And Rudolf Steiner put forward this idea that the entire vineyard or the entire farm is a single living, breathing organism. And to fix anything within this organism, within this, this uh, closed uh, ecosystem, you have to fix, you have to use what's in the ecosystem to fix it and make it more disease resistant. Um, organics, on the other hand, are going to be nothing added in the vineyard sites. Uh, uh, so no chemical additives, no pesticides, no herbicides, no fungicides, et cetera, et cetera. The only spray that's really used in, in that would be the Bordeaux mixture. Um, and that's uh, primarily to prevent powdery mildew. Um, but even that is used very sparingly because you don't want to increase copper levels in the soil. Getting back to, to biodynamics in that conversation, you also uh, create 501 or 500 and two, through 509, and that's a set of different teas and tinctures uh, that are made with, uh, you know, burying manure in a cow horn and spraying it on a vineyard, crushing up silica and spraying it on a vineyard. And when you, for example, when you crush up silica, you spray it on the, on the vineyard right after bud break, right when the, the leaves are just starting to take hold. And if that little layer of silica covers this leaves and the sun hits it and this vineyard explodes. And in 24 to 72 hours, you just get crazy bud growth and crazy um, shoot growth. And that's one of the treatments that can be used uh, and was especially used in Austria uh, where you know, they don't have a lot of sunlight and you know their growing season is rather short um, and so when you talk about say uh, down in Australia where there's a lot of biodynamics happening in Australia they don't use that and so they can't be considered by Demeter because they don't use that tea um, that spray they can't be considered biodynamics so even though we have this lovely word biodynamics and we have organizational bodies and we have people doing the right processes it needs to really be site specific and it really needs to be individual vineyard specific to what we actually talk about and how we experience the lunar cycle, the, the growth cycle, um, the dormancy cycle, which is just as important as the growth cycle and how we experience those different cycles site to site to site. Great. Okay. So natural wines obviously have been around for some time. I mean, the reality is they were the original wine for thousands of years before commercial industrial practices altered the process throughout the world. However, there does seem to be a definitive uh, rising keen interest in them today. Um, I'm not sure if it's just wine and spirits geeks like ourselves or if there does appear to be some type of trend slowly emerging. Very much so. Um, Alex, uh, Alice Faring is, uh, was a writer for the New York Times. And when she started writing about these 20 years ago, um, she was only writing about them in Parisian wine bars. 
you know. Uh, then we move to the, the mid-2000s, and the conversation is now in uh, Bacchanal in uh, New Orleans. It is now in Terroir in San Francisco. It is now, it's left across, it's in the port cities, and now we're in the conversation where it's here in Denver, Colorado, and sitting on the Colorado Natural Wine Board on the um, Events and Programming Committee, we've been, this is the sixth year, uh, or would have been the sixth year that we were going to hold a Colorado Natural Wine Week. So it's moving, um, even in that, even here in Colorado. When we first start up, started out, it was a roast pig, myself in flip-flops at a fucking poolside, and I think maybe there were 15 people. <laughs> Last year, we had over 126 consumers at the actual consumer tasting. We had upwards of 200 buyers at the buyer portion of that, that day and an and event back to fucking back every single day for that entire week. So it is a trend. It is happening. Um, you know, when I, when I wrote the paper, I jumped onto the old Instagram, which is a huge way of promoting natural wines. And natural wines are being promoted on social media and out outside of the normal what we think of traditional means of of marketing say like you know the wine advocates or say you know other magazines and publications and as of like three weeks ago when i submitted my paper there were eight hundred and forty six thousand followers on the hashtag drink natural and that is that's fucking cool yeah that's rad and you know, these natural wines are, are creating, um, they're creating an omnivorous conversation and an omnivorous search for other flavors. We have this uh, flavor, we have this understanding of wine as we know it. And I would say that for me um, and that for probably yourself, given our ages, was a created natural or a created um, chemically altered and a uh technologically heavy style of production of wine it was definitely filtered it was definitely fine um if we were drinking wine in the 90s which i was not we had the robert effect robert parker effect of big bold rich reds <laughs> a lot of oak we move into the 2000s everybody is using temperature controlled fermentations everybody is using cultured yeasts you drop this yeast in you get this exact flavor you get these esters and these compounds and you produce a very specific clean style of wine fantastic some of those wines are amazing but some of them lack any depth lack any texture and you know especially i mean natural wines by and large are more expensive because of the biodynamic additives and what you have to do organically in the in the vineyard um, and then the process of sometimes it's a complete bust and you got to start over the next year or or you sell a, a flawed wine, which is a big pushback in the natural wine world right now because there's a lot of natural wines that people are just using the word natural to hide behind <laughs> uh, and selecting what we're going to taste later today. I wanted to show the actual clean, proper side of the natural world. Great. So I think that I'm fairly confident anyway that France was the country that first started experimenting with this notion of natural wine, kind of trying to resurrect what the, their great-great-grandparents were doing in the vineyards and, and kind of this 
this um, revolt against, you know, homogenization and uh, going back to the old ways, which, which I think is fantastic. And then you mentioned um, Australia, and I know Italy's uh, doing a little stuff in this, this realm as well. Are there any other countries uh, that are experimenting with natural wine production in recent years? Yeah, so to kind of give a quick down and dirty overview of natural wine, um, I would say, it, and my research has pointed to, it started in France uh, with Jules Chavet in the 1950s and 60s. Um, he was a pioneering viticulturalist um, and more importantly, a, um, a vinification revolutionary. Uh, he started the process of, uh, and really refined the process of carbonic maceration, which we associate with Beaujolais. From there, his disciples, um, uh, Jean Fouillard, Marcel Lapierre, um, Guy Breton, uh, Jean-Paul Favier, like these individuals, this gang of four, uh, as, <laughs> as the, Kermit Lynch called them, brought, the, brought this natural wine to the forefront. From there, I would uh, argue that it spread as a conversation to Italy. Um, we have um, in Sicily, the um, Giovanna family, we have Occhio Pinti, we have uh, these, you know, quite famous people making net wine in a natural way out of Sicily. It goes all the way up to the north. Um, we move over to Spain, people uh, across Spain, especially, you know, in like Porto, which we're going to taste later, um, to a lesser extent in Rioja, um, to a little bit more of an extent up north in Rio Spices. Um, it starts moving, it starts spreading, and this conversation then hops to the United States. And you have a lot of producers in California that are rocking these wines, and you have producers in Oregon that are focusing on this natural style, um, low acid, bright, full expression of fruit, um, fresh, fresh, fresh style of wines. Um, the new Australia is rocking it uh, to lesser extent. Um, New Zealand, and that's primarily because you have to have a lot of um, people to pick these varieties, and New Zealand has such a small population um, that they mostly harvest with uh, machines. So yes, there is natural styles of wine coming out of there, but it, it's on a smaller scale. Um, I mean, and then we jump to South Africa, and South Africa is blowing up right now. Um, Argentina, lesser extent, but Chile, Chile is, is crushing it with, you know, carbonically macerated pais and um, different Pinot Noirs. And it, it's, it's definitely a global conversation now, whereas it was not so 20 years ago, not so 30, 40 years ago. You mentioned Tokai. Um, are, there, are there any other which is Hungary typically, are there any other Eastern European uh, countries that are, that are engaged in this? And what about Georgia where let's, uh, let's say wine originated? You, you, yeah? you hit the nail on the fucking head with that. Georgia is, is by design, by kind of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. In fact, about 6,000 years of winemaking traditions um, have, are, are, are in Georgia and they use, um, uh, a traditional amphora for all of their grapes. And the amphora is not temperature controlled. It is buried in, in ground. So you do have that moderating effect of temperature. But at the end of the day, you have fun skin contact wines, um, whites, 
orange wines, like you have all of these natural styles coming out of Georgia that really never left the old ways, <laughs> if you will, um, and, and continued with it, you know? Um, yeah, Gorbachev really fucked a lot of things up, but we won't get, we'll go down that path. <laughs> Okay, how about natural wine certification? I don't believe that exists yet. Is there any talks of trying to designate this as a specific category regionally or? Just this year, actually, France made a definition. Oh, that's right, yes. Yeah. So France does have a definition um, and it's broken into two. There's the first definition, sans uh, so without sulfites added whatsoever, the only sulfites are naturally occurring from the fermentation process. And then um, you have the, just the natural designation. Um, at this point, um, that's the only global designation that I that I am aware of. Um, there is a conversation in South Africa for a designation um, and a natural category, um, but that is yet to actually come to fruition. In the United States, everybody's talking about it, but nobody's doing anything. And in the United States, we have very dirty fucking winemaking process. Um, yeah there are 76 additives that are accepted by the US federal government uh, to be put into wine. And of that 76, 38 of them are considered gras or generally respected as safe. And I don't know about how you eat food or how you see food, but if there's something that's generally respected as safe, fuck that. Amen. Like, I don't want anything generally respected as anything, much less generally respected as safe being in my wine. and. That is, that is why we need a category like this. We need a conversation for low sulfites, you know. At, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people all throw all of their, their issues onto the sulfite conversation. And that, by and large, is a misguided conversation because sulfites, yes, do have, there's, there's less than a tenth of, or less than a hundredth of the population that is sulfite affected. That being said, well, last time somebody was like, oh, I drank red wine and it gave me a headache. No, bitch, you drank too much or you are drinking garbage red wine that is filled with powder tannins, filled with all kinds of additives, and you are getting a histamine reaction to what's in that wine, not the actual wine itself. And don't blame it on sulfites. The last time you had a, a, a cheeseburger and you ate a side of French fries that were pre-frozen French fries that were reheated in a fucking vat of boiling oil, those French fries have sulfur upwards of 1,400 parts per million. My favorite snack of all time on a cheese plate um, are dates and um, dried apricots. Dried apricots, some have upwards of 3,000 mm -hmm. parts per million of sulfites. So it's not the sulfites, you know? And people are like, well, I only drink organic wine. And it's like, okay, so in the United States, we do have a definition of that. If the wine is labeled organic wine, that means that there's no added sulfites. Now, if you're really fucking paying attention, you need to look at the wine bottle because it could say made with organic grapes, which therefore it, it exonerates anything the winemaker does. As long as they're made with organic grapes, he or she can put, do whatever they want to the wine. Yeah, because organic, let's, let's face it, is an FDA. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I trust the FDA about as much as I trust Russian oligarchs or, uh, you know, I could, the list goes on. But 
Yeah, they're not exactly out for protecting uh, our health, no. contrary to what some naive delusional people might think. Um, so yeah. So how about for the people out there who, who are wondering what in the hell is the, rever uh, is the, the relevance of sulfites? Um, what role do they play in winemaking? I mean, they obviously exist naturally on the skin of the grape, but why would a winemaker need to add sulfites to the... So I'll real quick correct you there. Uh, sulfur dioxide is not uh, on the skin of the grapes. Sulfur dioxide naturally comes from the fermentation process. It's part of the, uh, uh, what is released with carbon dioxide and heat in that process. That being said, okay. um, sulfur dioxide, when added to a, a uh, fermenting musk, um, well, first off, let's, let's take it back. So your grapes come in and you have the option, as soon as they come in, if you're in a, a very clinical winemaking facility, you add uh, sulfur, um, you, add, you add sulfur. It's in a white powder, you throw it on the grapes and it stops any type of microbial activity. So you're using it as a yeast preventative method. Kill the yeast on the outside of the grapes, those grapes chill, they come in, they start the fermentation, therefore you can inoculate and you can add whatever yeast strain you want to take over the fermentation. And that will give you, I mean, you can, you can pick yeast strains that give you banana, that give you, um, you know, vanilla and that give you like all kinds of, well, not really vanilla, but you can select fruit flavors basically, basically on cultured yeasts. And then once that process is done, uh, fermentation is complete, you add a little bit more to the, uh, to the wine before it's bottled. And when that is added, you're using it as an antioxidant. So it binds to any free oxygen that's in the wine. Um, it basically stops that free radical from staying in the wine and you're left with a completely oxygen-free wine. Now, in the winemaking process, that's sulfur at three different levels. In the natural wine world, they don't ever put sulfur on the grapes when they come in because you don't want to kill the natural biota of yeast that are on the grapes. So the grapes come in, they start the fermentation process, everything gets going, and because you didn't kill that original yeast biota, you are left with hundreds of different types, thousands of different types of yeasts, and those give you inherently different flavors. You get, you know, um, Britannomyces and uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae are kind of the primary two that we, that we talk about, and those kind of take over and continue the process. Britannomyces will actually stall out depending on red or white at different temperatures, and then Saccharomyces cerevisiae will continue uh, to finish the actual ferment. When we get to um, when we get to the the end of that fermentation, some natural winemakers will use sulfur dioxide for two reasons. One, as an antioxidant, and two, as an antimicrobial. So because you don't find, because you don't filter, a little bit of sulfur will actually stabilize the wine and will allow you a shelf-stable product that will have a little bit less opportunity to change and evolve between leaving the warehouse, going to your customer's house, and into their final glass. Great, okay. Now, thank you for explaining that. Uh, how about, aging uh how do natural wines do aging long time versus the more um the more mainstream um variety of wine production well, um 
I guess the quick and dirty answer is it depends on the wine and depends on what the, the final goal is. So if you have a naturally made red wine, they'll age um, roughly about the same speed and same process as a, um, a naturally made wine or commercially made wine. Um, when you start discussing white wines and they have skin contact, so in that orange wine, an orange wine setting, because they have some uh, higher phenols and because they have a different, um, they, they have skin contact, you can age them for longer than say your traditional white. Uh, but I would say a lot of natural wines are made for immediate consumption. They're meant to be fun. They're meant to drink now. They're meant to pop, but just like enjoy with your friends. Then that's kind of the whole trend of the natural wine movement is it allows us to drink wine right fucking now. I'm a millennial. I don't have the ability to drink fucking Grand Cru whenever I want. And I sure as hell don't have the fucking time or the effort or the money or the cellar space to be able to put a <laughs> corton in the fucking cellar, hang out for 15 years. I don't even know if I'm going to have a car in 15 years of the way shit's going right now. So I don't have that ability. I do have the ability to pay a little bit more right up front in that 25 to 35 dollar range and drink it tonight <laughs> as opposed to pay 150 or 400 and then be like well maybe in 15 years it'll be ready and i can really enjoy it no i don't have that and yeah. i quite frankly don't know a lot of people at my age that do and so that natural wine this movement is really geared towards young individuals hip millennials you know you can I mean, granted, I don't have a beard right now and I'm not in a fucking fedora, but we know those people. We know that, like, that's the, that's the movement, that's the genre. Um, and that's the flavor, the omnivores flavor category that people are looking for. You're far too handsome for a beard, Tony. Thank you. <laughs> also, there's a reason I have 2,000 square foot, or 2,000 thread count sheets. This fucking baby face needs those, you know? <laughs> awesome. All right. Um, so cloudy, funky, barnyardy terms often used to describe natural wines. Um, so let's break those down individually. Please. Cloudy, unfiltered, unfined, yep. or can also mean skin contact. Um, and in quick conversation between fining and filtration, fining is when you're using charged ions to take free radicals out of the wine. And that can be done with bentonite that can be done um, with uh, egg whites, you know, some super old school Bordeaux houses. And Muga in Rioja still use egg whites, which is pretty rad. Um, and then we have this really gross one called Ilsen glass. And that is a fish bladder, um, an enzyme found in the fish bladder. So a lot of wines, when they say that they're not vegan, people are like, what do you mean they're not vegan? What the, f what? Well, they're using Ilsen glass, a fish bladder derivative that is a fining agent in this process. And as long as we have the people out in the world eating fish sticks, we're going to have this, <laughs> this byproduct. Um, filtration on the other side, that is used, you actually use a filter and there are hundreds of different types of filters of all different sizes and everything from, you know, just filtering out a bunch of you know, heavy gross leases and things of that nature, all the way down to a full sterile filtration. And the reason people are against both of those, they believe it takes something out of the wine. And uh, some people go as far as to say that it strips the entire soul out of the wine. I think it's a little drastic, but what have you. Um, now, funky barnyard flavors. 
that I think is the, the Britannomyces that, that we talked about. Um, when we talk about barnyard, we talk about funk, we talk about a lot of Belgian style beers, mm -hmm. you know? And we talk about the farmhouse style and we talk about that funky richness and Britannomyces specifically gives you those flavor characteristics. Thank you. Can you share a time in your life where your palate received a significant monumental aha moment after tasting a certain beverage? Well, thank God you just asked after that conversation with Tanamyces, because yes, <laughs> in the natural wine world, um, I had this realization that when I drink white wines or rosés that are natural, that have a cider touch to them or have a uh, sour cherry, sour apple, sour characteristic, that's Britannomyces at a temperature between 18 and 21 degrees Celsius. And that's how it shows itself in natural white wine. And then when I drink red wine, both commercially produced and or um, specifically naturally produced, Britannomyces shows up completely differently at a higher temperature. Uh, uh, anything above 26 degrees centigrade, you get barnyard, you get animal, you get raw meat, you get um, horse's blanket, you get these crazy funky um, tones. And that's, you know, that's how it presents itself. What about fungal notes? Or would that be a, would, would that be a negative quality? Fungal notes as in like mushroom? Yeah. Yeah, mushroom presents itself not as Britannomyces. Um, I would say mushroom notes sometimes show up more um, specific to the varietal. Okay. Um, specifically Pinot Noir on the red wine side of things. That forest floor, that mushroom, <clears throat> yeah. I think is more of an inherent aromatic characteristic to that. Um, Britannomyces is a yeast scent that is kind of across the board and across varietal. Okay. So you can smell and say the Volvereta, um, it's actually not really more, more the, uh, the, the Coterelle, you can get that animal characteristic, but it's, it's less so than say, you know, uh, a big cab out of uh, Napa, which they sometimes use for that to really pull out. Cane five is, is one house or, or a uh, Margot house that uses Britannomyces to elevate and add to their kind of flavor characteristics. So which was this, which was this beverage that caused the aha moment? Oh man. Um, I know, I know it's tough it because you enjoy started, a lot. I do. I, I imbibe. <laughs> um, it, it was, it was a realization when I was drinking a, um, farmhouse or Flemish sour. Um, it was, um, Duchess de Bourgogne hmm. as a beer. And I put together Britannomyces <laughs> and flavor compounds on both sides of the spectrum. And then I realized that, if I bring that over to the wine world and to my kind of sense and how I experience wine, it's the same experience, but at different temperatures and uh, with different varietals. How about, and I know this is a tough one, and, and, and you could go to three if you'd like, but I was going to ask you, what is the best tasting beverage that you've ever put to your lips something that just completely rocked your socks and and uh you know transported your senses to some heavenly uh ethereal place oh, I, I know exactly what 
single one. That would be the 19, or 1830 El Maestro Sierra Panorama Amontillado. Um, <laughs> there are two barrels of this in existence in the entire world. And when I had that for the first time, that just blew my mind. Uh, it's the crown jewels of sherry. It's the crown jewels, I would say, almost in the, in the fortified wine world. And there's just nothing, nothing like it. Amontillado's got quite a history, mm-hmm. quite a track record uh, in the world as a, as a very revered uh, libation. Um, wasn't it, um, no, it was not at the uh, inauguration. I was trying to think, what's the, it was um, Madeira. It was really huge at Washington's. Um, 1774. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I would imagine they were probably sipping some Amontillado back then here in the colonies as well. Um, and anywhere else around the world where these old rich fuckers from Europe were setting up. That's just it. If you were going to transport wine back in the day, there's no fucking way you could transport a natural wine. Are you crazy? (laughs) That shit would be so cooked, so fucked up by the time it got there. There's no chance. Yeah. You know, and, and they had to fortify it. Sure. You know, and they had to do additives. They had to add, uh, first off, alcohol. They had to use, you know, say the oxidation process to stable it. You know, there was no chance that they would ever be drinking something like this uh, or this fresh back in the day. And there's honestly not really a chance that people even 20 years ago were had the ability to drink this commercially because of refrigeration. You know, now with refrigerated trucks and refrigerated warehouses and you know, it keeps the, the temperature of these inherently unstable wines. And I'll say that again, inherently unstable wines, it keeps them preserved at a temperature. And, you know, sometimes it's, these wines sit on a, on a shelf or, or you age it for too long and, and then you just bring it on and stick it on your shelf. It's not going to be the same today as it will be in six months, guaranteed, especially if you leave it at room temperature. So... Drink it, drink it, take it home, drink it. <laughs> Amen. All right. Is there a beverage that you cannot imagine life without? I am a whore for a heavily peated scotch. Just Hi, overwhelming. Give me a campfire in my mouth. Just, uh, yes, please. Ask and you shall receive. I think I have a few things for you before you leave. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay, good. I just took a a bit of a gander at some of the whiskeys behind me and I think we're set for a little, uh, a little dram or two after the wine session. So let's move on to the next question being, uh, can you share one habit or routine that has contributed to your sanity and well-being? during these crazy times? Uh, kind of not losing sight of my, of my studies. Honestly, that's kept me going. And um, in you know, kind of a, a little backstory, when we first went into quarantine and I essentially lost my, I mean, I was still employed, but I went from being out every single day, talking to people and enjoying what I do on a day-to-day basis to sitting on my couch and having a complete existential crisis. And I realized like, holy fuck. And it finally took me getting back into studying, getting back into 
thinking about wine, thinking about a, a, a future in wine and how I play into that to actually pull myself out of that, that slump of depression, honestly. Um, now I shoot for setting anywhere. I just open a book 30 minutes a day at minimum to if I can pull off an hour, an hour and a half, even better. And that's, you know, in the morning, as soon as I wake up, I sit in bed and read a couple pages or it's, you know, in the middle of the afternoon when um, now I'm back to work and I'm up in Boulder and somebody, you know, flakes on an account or maybe we have a miscommunication. I'm like, well, cool, I've got my book. I'm just going to sit here and read for 20, 30 minutes and go off to my next thing. That's great. Yeah, I think it's really beneficial to make use of the downtime one has uh, to benefit oneself in some way, whether it's physically or mentally or even spiritually. Um, yeah, I made the fucking mistake of downloading TikTok during class. <laughs> fucking idiot. Never, never do that to yourself. I, I won't. I can assure you of that. <laughs> but I have enjoyed some of the uh, performances I've witnessed for sure. <laughs> how about um, how about personal and professional long-term goals? I mean, at this point, to my my short term, um, uh, in three months, to zip out to San Francisco, finish the theory portion of the uh, unit three on diploma package that up in a lovely, beautiful box, wrap a bow on it, set it to the side, and then start the behemoth that is the master of wine. And, you know, jump into a three to five to seven to 10 year experience. And, you know, when I talk to MWs or people going through that course, um, Ashley Botter signed it or put it together perfectly. She was like, yeah, I was, I started and then I realized, holy shit, I finished. And it's, it's, you know, as, as everybody says, it's, it's the process, it's the process. That's, it's very much a process and it's a long process that if you try to just focus on getting it done, you're never going to get it. You have to just focus on taking these baby, baby, baby incremental steps. And then at the end, you're like, Oh fuck, I actually did it. Yeah. And just enjoy the journey along the way. Yeah. And, and it's a most worthy, yeah. most worthy journey at that. And, and kudos to you because, uh, you know, there's a lot of concern about what the future holds for psalms out there and uh, the on-premise channels in general. Mm -hmm. So to say, fuck it, I'm, I'm going to pursue this dream, come hell or high water, and I'll figure out a way to make this um, work for me in some way, uh, I commend you. Because uh, one thing I've noticed in life is one has to follow their passions to find true happiness. And if you put your passions on the side for some other shit in the, in the immediate, I don't think it's ever going to work out for you in the long run. You're going to have regrets and uh, you know, we should never regret things that we've, that we've uh, done in the past, but we should definitely learn from um, things that we've endured and faced along the way and definitely make sure to put, things that fuel our, our, our heart, our soul, our cerebral cortex as front and center. Definitely. Um, well, if you were a beverage, how would you be described? Super fruity, hey. <laughs> um, I don't know, that's a great question. I, I think that, 
don't know. I, I hope that, you know, there's, there's certain lines that you discuss as, as cerebral with depth and with character, and I, I hope I fall in that category. I, I hope that something with a little bit of age, not too much age, um, <laughs> something that um, might be a little bit salty and occasionally a briny, um, but I might be in a, mont- a Montanilla Passado. That's what I might, I might be. Or you might be a coastal single malt from Scotland, lad. That is, that is a possibility. <laughs> that is damn true. <laughs> yeah, I, I really love those wines that uh, come from near the coast where you can actually, that was kind of a re- revelation for me. It was discovering that, oh my God, there's wines that have this subtle salinity, salty influence. And not only necessarily from the coastal air, but even from like the oysters in the, in the granite soil that mm-hmm. they grow in. It's fucking yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, super cool. Well, I mean, it, you touched on minerality, you touched on this conversation and people are just discussing minerality left and right. No, you can't taste minerals. No, you can't taste this, but you know what you can taste is you can taste an, an, an experience that the grape and the wine and the roots have with the microbiome and the microecology in that specific soil type that therefore offers you something different. And if we really want to get down to it, each different soil type hosts a different mycelia set and a different microbiome. So the microbiome from um, Central Coast, California to Otago Bay to um, uh, Burgundy to Willamette, um, and I'm just listing off places where they grow Pinot, are all different. You know, the microbiome set that's on a uh, Sicilian coast is different than the microbiome set that's on um, a Greek isle, and they're so close. And, and each of those microbiological experiences interact with the plants, interact with the vine, and give you a different quality, and give you a different experience and a different flavor set. And that's what's beautiful about it, you know? And people, that's what terroir is. That is what the uh, like complete and utter sense of terroir that I, I believe um, is experienced by people. And if you want to call it minerality, cool. If you don't, then don't call it minerality. Fuck that. You can definitely definitely detect minerality in wines. Oh, I mean, if, I, I agree hundred yeah. percent, but there's certain individuals out there that in the wine world that also, instead of describing certain notes, they think that you only need to, and this kind of died out about 10 years ago, um, that you have to say four methyl glycol. Oh Jesus. Instead okay. Instead of vanilla or, or, you know, instead of oak treatment. Right. And you know, fuck those people. I'm not a fucking chemist. I was going to say, yeah, we're not in chemistry class, bitches. Um, take your, take your snooty, um, aloof ass out of here. It's fermented grapes we're drinking here. Let's not get too, um, yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the Mediterranean. I don't know if you touched on Greece. Um, what a magnificent country with stellar, stellar, weird distillates that they make number one. And then some crazy, awesome wines too. Are they doing any of these, you know, ancient ways of production in some of their little tiny villages? Most definitely. Um, and, and in smaller villages, you get less technology, which yeah. makes more naturally spaced wines. Um, I mean, also too, you get weird wines that pop up that, like Ritzina. 
Ritzina is not a natural wine. Ritzina has the complete and utter intoxicating aroma of of the tar of that those turpentines and you know you might put a, have a natural wine that's put in it but i don't i would very strongly suggest not to call britzina a natural wine because of how flavored it is right i mean i almost consider britzina closer to the vermouth family and to uh aromatize like quinactos and things of that nature than i do a still white wine just because of how heavily influenced it is with that aromatic set I, I believe I have some as well that we will definitely drink before you leave. Um, yeah, remind me to pull that out. And then something really cool from Portugal that I, that I want to taste you on. Um, so before we get into the tasting of the, uh, the lovely wines that you brought along, can you share a little bit uh, your, your decision-making process with the assortment of wines we're about to explore and, and how you selected them and what your, um, what your thought process was. Yeah, um, I wanted to show old and, and new world. Um, and I wanted to show some different styles of wine that are really popping out from, the, uh, from this movement. Um, some of them are very old. Some of them are um, quite new in, in general kind of mentality and understanding and some of them are a little bit in between but i want this i feel shows a, a, a breadth of of natural wine and you know no we, we're not drinking uh say a um a wine directly from the gang of four or from beaujolais where this started or even from the loire valley i want to be a little bit more expansive and show some newer hot spots of, of natural wine i guess uh, or, or a pr producer that is in a category that is as unnatural as humanly possible, <laughs> you know? So I guess there's that. And I guess we'll start off with that in our glass right now. Um, this is the Di Stefani. Di Stefani is a 100% Galera. It is a vintage Prosecco, uh, and it's done Calfondo. And what Calfondo means is on Belize. And you'll look at this, you'll look at this cloudy, cloudy wine, and you can see and smell that yeast characteristic. Most of the time, you never, actually most of the 99.9% .9 of the time, you never get a yeast characteristic or an autolysis off of uh, Prosecco because it's fresh, it's fruity, it's, you know, spends its second fermentation in a large tank and then gets bottled and sent to the United States at $7.99. And this is a completely different experience. You do get that lovely apple and those beautiful kind of floral characteristics that I always associate with Prosecco and with Galera grapes specifically, but that layer of yeast, that unfiltered, that unfined characteristic really transport you to a different flavor scent. Yeah, toasted bread and like you'd say green apple. Mm -hmm. Totally. You know, not to um, offend any Ashleys out there, but this is not Ashley's uh, Prosecco that she drinks every Sunday. You know, this is something a little bit different. Um, there's something wrong with this. <laughs> but you get it on the palate and sour notes. When was the last time you had a sour completely like, and not sour like green apple sour, but like that Britannomyces funky sour beer sour. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because the finish 
it's weird. The, the finish starts on like kind of this, this elegant, elaborate, medium bodied, but then boom, it just, it, it cuts off very dry, clean and austere. Mm -hmm. And I love the word that the word that you use clean. Yeah. It is a clean finish. Some natural wines by design in this inherent, like inherent kind of, um, uh, not stable environment, so to speak, will finish animally and will not finish clean. But these are all examples of clean finishing natural wines. And there's a, the biggest conversation that I need to stress to people is, is there are some natural wines out there that are just going and hiding under the name natural. And they're fucked up and they're flawed and they're wrong. And that being said, you as a consumer need to drink more and need to kind of understand the different flaws in the, in the wine and, and to be able to recognize and just say, no, this is actually flawed. You know, let's, let's find something else, you know? Uh, and, and that's, that comes with consumer per perception and consumer understanding and, you know, um, the understanding of the, the song, you know, the gatekeepers of, of wine, so to speak, or the, just talking to your friendly person at a wine store. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, for the consumers out there that are not in the industry, these guys are tasting wines every single day um, from a myriad of producers, suppliers, distributors coming in, and they definitely know what's on their shelf and, and how to accommodate whatever you're seeking to enjoy. Um, can you talk a little bit about this particular winery? So people, uh, might might be intrigued to go explore some of the other wines that they have available. Yeah, so Vistafani is going to be um, a winery that is has been around for a very long time um, up in the, the Veneto. Um, they are one of the first, um, I would say one of the first Prosecco houses to be doing Calfondo styles and, and revive it into the modern day. And they're across the board. All everything that's on the table is bio or is is organic. Um, and then a few of these, um, so the one that we're drinking right now, does practice biodynamics. So what they really believe is that this this starts in the vineyard, and this prosecco is going to be three times as much as some other proseccos out there, or at least two times. But you see the quality that they're bringing to the table, and you're seeing the artistry. Yeah, this is not whimsical. And it's certainly not some uh, sweet, flabby, um, you know, nonsense. This is this is quite. It's interesting because inherently, whenever I nose and taste a wine or a whiskey, um, I'm always thinking food pairings. And uh, due to all the wine dinners and the in the whiskey dinners that I used to host, it just kind of comes a second nature. And when I nose and taste this, this this could go to start the meal this could go with a main course this could go this could even go with a dessert mm -hmm. something with like a, a toast point and yeah. you know some maybe like well i don't want to get too naughty but i was actually thinking like uh foie gras yeah. Um, yeah. on a on a toast point with some type of like wine reduction syrup drizzled over it would be fucking ridiculous yeah, you could even play into the the realm of having because you get some of those some of those kind of sour components you could do like orange rind you could go into the realm of you know like mm. a sour cherry or a tart berry um, sorbet sorbets they would be great with that um 
Yeah, this, this works across the board because it is so versatile and you have so many complex characteristics to this. Yeah, I, well, let's go on to the next one. Perfect, let's stay in, let's stay in Italy and let's go to. And this was from Sicily, you said? Yes, this is from okay. Sicily. Yep. The last one. Uh, no, the last, the last one, the Prosecco is from Veneto, so it's up north. Okay. Now we're going all the way down south to uh, Terra Siciliana, unfiltered. This is an orange wine of 100% Grillo. Grillo is the, an indigenous grape to Sicily. It's their, their benchmark white wine, um, and it's produced all across the island in different styles, depending on proximity to the ocean and a number of different experiences. It can be, it can be richer, it can be lighter, it can be orange, as in this case. Um, Camuria, orange, uh, that they call it, Camuria from their dialect, translates to trouble. <laughs> um, and funny enough, Camuria uh, with two M's um, from old school Latin translates uh, to uh, gonorrhea. <laughs> but, you know, um, there's, there's, there is a fine line between trouble and gonorrhea, trust me, I know that. But uh, that being said, it's a really interesting wine because it's so muted. The nose is not jumping out of the glass now that it's been no. for a little bit. You do get a little bit of those piercing qualities. You're getting a little bit of like uh, Meyer lemon rind. You're getting a lot of like uh, Parmesan cheese rind. You're getting a lot of like mm -hmm. um, Seville orange almost. Um, maybe even like some smashed almond. You, you're getting fruit forward, some fruit forward characteristics, but because and this, this goes back to the conversation we had earlier about temperature fermentation. I might argue, I will, will argue at this point, is that the temperature on this wine got a little bit uh, too hot, so to speak, and because they couldn't control temperature, you lost aromatic characteristics. Now, the trade-off though, mm. is because mm. you lost aromatic characteristics on the nose, and you, you, but you preserved a lot of the phenolic characteristics from the skins on the palate, it's still a pleasurable wine to drink. Oh yeah, and a nice acidic structure. It's a really good firm backbone. And uh, can you explain orange wine to people who are not familiar with this category? Yeah, so orange wine as a category is a white wine that spends an extended amount of time on the skins. So because you spend so much time on the skins, you get a phenolic, you get almost a tannin structure and you can get some tannins into the wine itself and that colors the wine this beautiful orange color. Um, a lot of orange wine is coming out of Italy. There's uh, some orange wines. I mean, some of the most famous orange wines would be the Radicon wines. Um, and you know, you go over to Georgia, there's a lot of wine in Georgia, the Balkan region, um, usually traditionally amphora fermented. Man, I want a, I want a uh, panna cotta with orange blossom water, um, or or like a orange blossom honey, mm -hmm. uh, and this would be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I would go complete opposite side and go out to thinking about the beginning of a meal, and just just this 
charred, charred, charred um, sardines mm. with good olive oil and a little bit of um, like a olive compote right on top. A grilled octopus yeah. with an olive compote would be amazing. Yeah. Because then you pull out those salty, almost acetyl hides. Yeah. What what's the um the bottle price on this in the store? Uh in the store you're going to be looking at probably close to twenty six, twenty-seven dollars. That's great. Um and that's you know, by and large on the, the light side of orange wines. Orange wines because there's so much put into it, because they have to extend aging, because they have to watch it and fiddle with it and you know, raise it, so to speak, you have more inputs. And, and by and large, because of the organics and the biodynamics and the winemaking processes, natural wine is going to be more expensive than conventional wine across the board. Yeah. And people have to realize that. I, I would assume just on the, the limited yield alone, you yeah. know, hand-picked grapes and, yeah. and then not controlling the process as much, like you're you're at the fate of the elements, you're at the fate of the harvest, you're at the, there's so many variables that uh, it's obviously gonna be a heavy, uh, heftier price point. So zero oak in this, I'm, is this like aged in stainless or? Stainless on this guy. Wow, that's cool. Um. <laughs> do, you, do you know anything? I'm assuming one of the children of yes, the. Uh, no, the so Gunther, um, we're talking about the label, the, the, the label cute has label. This cute little snail on it, and that was uh, <laughs> drawn by uh, Gunther's three year old son. Nice. Yeah. Not bad for a three year old. No, I mean, he got two eyes and a smile and a snail <laughs> thing. So, like, not sure. I think this is a flower, maybe. I don't know. But it looks great. So, it goes well with. Um, with uh damn it what's i can't believe i'm already slipping um what's the uh escargot yes, <laughs> good, yes. good escargot pairing or drink it and watch your kid finger paint you know? there, there you go that's a possibility too awesome uh what is next well next we have uh something that i've been waiting for all year this is chris brockway's brock sellers uh Trousseau Gris and White Zinfandel. He calls it his White Zin. And this is not your grandma's Behringer. This is not your Sutter home. This is something completely different. And as soon as you pop your nose in, you get that beautiful Britannomyces. You get that beautiful sour cherry note. The uh, Trousseau Gris spends 60 days on its skins. Um, you get this beautiful, cloudy, unfiltered, blushy, pink color mm. and there's just so much going on um the one thing i think chris brockway does better than a lot of individuals out of california um is just nails this style he has this freshness he has this vibrancy and it goes across the board you know when he does his carbonically macerated carignan from a hundred year old vines you're like, oh yeah, this is gonna be a big juicy carrot. It, 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 it's fresh and fruity and floral and it blows your mind, you know? He nails it, he nails it. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I was, I was <laughs> admittedly a little concerned that it might not be uh, 
cool enough because it's so fucking hot outside today. It's like 90 something degrees. But as this warms up, of course, no surprise, the aromas come out so much more prevalently. Totally. And uh, it, 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 this definitely does not nose like any white Zinfandel. No. This, uh, this reminds me of uh, like of a sour beer. Fresh cut strawberries. Totally. Fresh cut, like it's, it's, it's watermelon, it's strawberry, it's all these bright, fresh mm. summer fruits jumping out of this glass. Yeah, even a uh, subtle floral notes, mm -hmm. like a little like distant rose. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, the strawberries big. Mm -hmm. So what would you do with, what would you do this with food wise? I mean, the, the easy layup here would be a, a uh, um, basil feta uh, watermelon salad, mm -hmm. you know, kind mm -hmm. of that mm -hmm. realm, um, keep it simple. But I think this would even this, I, Personally, I think you could get away with doing some weird shit like with artichokes because I think there's enough mid palate structure, I think there's enough fruit and enough sour characteristics that it wouldn't really just the artichokes wouldn't totally destroy your palate. No, no, I mean, there's enough, there's definitely enough of a uh, backbone and structure on this to hold up to artichokes, but I would think the sauce would make all yeah, the difference totally. in the world which I think you would want the sauce to be some type of concentrated um, fruit variable in there. But, oh my God. Yeah, that's a cool one. But I bet this would be great cold as shit as well. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but man, when it's, when it's this temperature, you can really sit down and give a more proper sensory analysis of it um, as opposed to just, you know, chugging for um, a lovely session, funky um, delight. Good God. And I, and I love the label too. Um, the, the, the label is basically just this cool piece of art with nothing written, <laughs> which is amazing. Oh, to um, me it looks like the Burning Man setup. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like Black Rock City. Yeah. Yeah. It's like some, um, which this would pair perfectly with Burning Man. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. I've not been to Burning Man, um, but I'm well well acquainted. Uh, yeah, I could see that definitely working. Um, and in that uh, that climate, this slightly chilled would be the shit for sure. Um, for those of you not familiar with Brock Sellers, um, can you can you elaborate a little bit? That they're doing some really cool shit and yeah. this little warehouse in the middle of Berkeley. Yeah. yeah so they've got a, an urban winery. They are sourcing all of their grapes. Um, and he's making like 30 different types of wine and he's using all kinds of different fermentation vessels. He's got everything from, um, um, Hungarian, uh, Riesling barrels to this was fermented in a thousand liter sandstone. Um, He's just doing all kinds of wild, wacky, cool things. Like last year, one of my favorite wines was this open top fermented skin contact pick pool. And you're like, well, first off, where the fuck did you find pick pool in California? Second off, open, what? 
And the I, that style of wine is so drastically different than its cousin, Picpoul de Panay, which is this light, easy drinking wine out of France. And you're just like, okay, this, this man is a mad scientist. He's a genius. And he's making some really, really cool wines. What's his background before this? Do we, do you know? I'm not sure, actually. I, I, yeah, I, I know he's been producing for quite, I don't like at least 10, 15 years, I, at least 10 years. But before that, I, I have no idea. Hmm. Yeah, I, oh, and something else I'd love to do before we uh, conclude is for our local folks who want to know what stores they can buy these in, I would love to let them know um, out of courtesy for them, but also out of respect for any accounts that have the brains to carry shit that's this cool. So um, please, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, so one of, uh, let's, let's go all the way up to Northern Colorado. Um, there's a couple of these hiding around in um, in Wilbur's, but the largest Brock sellers, there's two there's two spots in Colorado that carry more Brock sellers than anywhere else. One is in Loveden, Colorado, Mrs. Torelli's Wine Flat. Um, and the second is Heartless Wine and Spirits in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and speaking on the natural okay. wine scene, Harvest Wine and Spirits is so unassuming. It's next to a King Supers. You, you walk in, and you're like, wait a second, this is the one of the best selections of natural wine in the entire state. And it's mind blowing. Um, some other small houses that carry natural wines, Cask and Craft here in Denver, um, uh, back jumping back up to Boulder, West End Wine Shop. Um, you know, we've got the big boys definitely for sure. The Hazels, the Mollies have some selection of a few of these wines, but by and large, know the smaller guys really uh, and the boutique wine shops really uh, support the natural wine movement more than anyone great um, like I would definitely love to raise a glass to Matt Dinsmore from uh, Wilbur's he's a class act fellow don't know if he's heard any of my podcast episodes but in the event you do Matt love you miss you uh, we need to get together one of these days it's been too damn long sir but anyway uh, Great, great. Um, I mean, for the size of that shop, the amount of quality that they carry, that they haven't lost their focus on carrying really good stuff is yeah. very commendable. Um, they definitely know how to appease the big houses as well as giving adequate, proper love to the small producers as well. So totally. a lot of respect for them. Yeah, two buyers there, David and Katie, that I know on the wine side of things, they're brilliant, amazing human beings. Wonderful. Yeah. All right. Um, now we're heading over to France. Yeah. Yes. Let's do France. So uh, one thing, and the reason I picked this wine, the old Cote de Rome, is because a lot of Rome production is pretty large, massive scale production. And I wanted to showcase this family, um, it's the Gras family. They are uh, of the house Saint-Duc. And Santa Duke, uh, the Duke is the large um, owl that is in Girondas, where their where their house is specifically. And this family, uh, the father Yves, was definitely following a path of uh, bigger, richer styles of wines, um, and if you will say the Robert Parker effect. Um, who, by the way, side note, Robert Parker called natural the natural wine movement um, undefinable scams. So. 
there's that. I guess they didn't have sufficient money to bribe him otherwise. That's true. Uh, so that being said, this uh, this house is, is has been taken on uh, by the son, and he's running with it and doing such cool things. Uh, this wine has terracotta amphora. This has all neutral oak, um, indigenous yeast sets, and he's just making clean, beautiful wine. This is a type of wine, you know, and we, when we discuss clean, mm. it's, it's sound through and through. It's nothing is going to have an off-putting, weird flavor. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. And aged in fucking terracotta jars. Like, that's some ancient shit, yeah? Mm-hmm. This is probably one of the oldest ways of, I mean, this... Th- similar to mezcal back in the day mezcal in the ancient days was stored in clay pots forever and i I would wager wine and many other spirits the same way um and it really comes through you get uh so what i get in red wine specifically that is aged in terracotta i get this iron overtone and Mm. if you've ever had a bloody nose it has that note, that kind of blood, um, and, Iron and not, character. not in a, I mean, a negative off-putting way. Like, don't go punch yourself in the nose to like try to experience this. Um, but what you can do is the next time you cut a piece of beef or you have a roast that you're going to put in, smell it. Yeah. You know, the one thing I do to challenge my sensory and to challenge um, how I recall sense and recall experiences is every time I put something in my mouth, I smell it. You know, when I'm at the grocery store now, I'm much less than I used to because of COVID, but pick up an orange, pick up three different oranges and smell the difference between each of the oranges. Mm. Smell the difference between a gala apple, between a Fuji apple, between, you know, um, a red delicious or or macintosh or what have you smell the difference between all of these apples and all of these fruits and all of these experiences so that you can use that vocabulary to then describe a lot of grenache in this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then a little silky syrah mm-hmm. mm. Yeah, that's a main course right there. Um, anything seared or off the grill with some type of um, pan reduction mm-hmm. would be would be um, phenomenal. Oh my god! I don't know. Maybe a tri-tip roast with a um, uh, chive and um, uh, oregano hollandaise. I have fresh oregano from the garden on that garlic bread over there. So yes, yeah, that'll go well with this. Um, Man. Yeah. And this, this calls for some cheese too. Mm -hmm. Holy moly. Eat it all. And so uh, for those of you wondering, well, what the hell are you drinking? This is a Domaine Santa Duke Cote de Rhone, and it's a 2017. And um, what's the bottle price on this, Tony, if, in the stores? What store you're looking at? Um, 
Oh my god. Fantastic. That's value. a fucking great price for this. And of course you can find Coach Rome at nine dollars. You can find it at ten dollars. You can find it at two, you know, whatever. But what I always tell people is find a like a a, lar- a, a producer for say um Chattanooga to Pop or or Jigandas or or that produces this uh, AOC level and then go down to their village, go down to their Cote Rome, spend a little bit more money, but you're going to have a far superior wine than just getting something off the shelf that says Cote Rome. Great. And so we had um a uh, well, not that it matters because I don't think I, no, I did broadcast this or no, I didn't broadcast that I put it on my uh, Instagram that we were doing the knee port, but the knee port is, uh, there was an issue with availability. So we can definitely revisit that sometime because we, we have carried some of their products at Finn's and holy shit, are they amazing? I mean, really cool house. Yeah. Knee port, I would say is one of, one of, if not the house that is defining the natural wine movement in Portugal. And, and Portuguese wine is one of those like undiscovered universes. Yeah. Um, and speaking of which, Johnny. Yes. Can you put that in the fridge? Yes. Yeah, Portuguese wine is especially still wines and still reds that are coming out of that region. I mean, and all over Portugal. Mind-blowing. I, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed and ashamed that I've not been to Portugal yet um, for so many reasons, let alone port itself. But the culture, the history, the heritage itself, the food, um, their impact on Brazil, which is one of my favorite places in the world, and the gorgeous Portuguese language is just friggin' magnificent. And so many parts of Portugal are still intact the way they were hundreds of years ago and that's something super rare these days and how much time have you spent over there you you've been to portugal a few I've, times i've been to portugal uh once unfortunately or fortunately but so, I so you've mean, been to spain several yeah, times I've been to spain okay. several times uh, used to live in spain um you know and then you know italy france the whole kind of wine areas if you will um but i have not really explored Portugal yet. And I think that's a place that needs some of, some of my time and some of my experience. And they're fairly receptive to American immigration for what that's worth. Very much so. Um, <laughs> actually, it's funny you bring that up. I was, side note, having a conversation with one of my dearest uh, friends and the idea of you know buying a villa and retiring with a group of individuals in Southern Spain seems to be increasing in price much uh, quicker than in Portugal. Mm. So I think Portugal might be, uh, might be the, the end game. Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk. Um, all right, so back to the wine. Mm, back to the wine. <laughs> so uh, Maria Alfonso is the winemaker here. This wine is a Tinto de Toro, mm. or a red wine from the Toro region. Um, and the Toro grape is uh, synonymous with Tempranillo. Name of this wine is Vovoreta. And Vovoreta um, in Gallego, uh, Spanish, their dialect of, of uh, Spanish is mariposa or butterfly. 
So this is Butterfly Wine, beautiful label. Um, what, what's really cool about this wine is, first off, and this is coming secondhand information, but seeing her, seeing the vineyard, seeing what she's doing, she's basically the Snow White of Spain. You know, uh -huh, biodynamic processes. Um, when people walk these vineyards, there's birds chirping, there's animals running around. Um, the uh, my friend Brian, who has a hand in importing this wine, um, was walking through the vineyards and he pointed and he's like, Maria, there's some grapes that haven't been picked. And she's like, Of course, those animals need it throughout the winter. Oh. And it's just like, okay, you are focused on the entire biome, the entire experience. You're not focused on price. You're not focused on turning profit. You're focused on creating the highest quality of a beverage that you can within the terms of an ecosystem. I was going to say creating and honoring an actual mini ecosystem. Yeah. So, so beautiful and so important in this, in this wine movement. Yes. You know, a lot of natural wines have the sustainability quality and people that buy natural wines now more than ever are concerned with sustainability, are concerned with social justice, are concerned with elevating female winemakers, are concerned with the whole, the, the culture behind it, not just does it taste good or is it, you know, $15 or what have you. And I think this wine really speaks to the whole of natural wine. Um, that's kind of why we finished with it today. But what's also really, really cool about this wine, um, she ferments in both amphora that are buried in the vineyards and um, she ferments traditionally in neutral French oak in the winery. So you get this duality only eight months uh, before being blended back. And I mean, no one in Spain is playing with amphora buried in their vineyards. Like what? <laughs> Like so rad, she is such a visionary. She is so ahead of her time and she is so respectful to the entire natural world. This is cool, man. Big, bold aroma. Like, uh, what is that I'm getting underneath that big black berries, but underneath, Violet. yes, yes. That's exactly what it is. I was like, there's something fruity floral I can't identify. It's fucking violet. Yeah. Wow. And it's, you know, like by and large, this is the biggest, juiciest wine that we have. This is 800 mm. meters above sea level. This is a single vineyard with 80 year old vines. Um, so it is structured. It is, you know, rich. It has that old vine kind of feel in your palate. But at the end of the day, it's still fresh. Yeah. You know, it's not like a Grand Reserve. It's spent three fucking years in oak. It's not, I mean. What's the ABV on this? Let me look real quick here. It, it tastes like a big ass jammy zen, but with so much more finesse. Yeah, it, I mean, it is, it is 14.5 alcohol. But oh, that would make sense. Keep in mind how well it hides the alcohol and how well it's integrated. Mm -hmm. you, you're not picking out alcohol you're not picking out you know a specific flavor or or tone it's so well integrated and so well developed wow and a beautiful wine and and also proof that you can have a big rich bold wine and it can be natural 
You know, it doesn't have to be carbonically macerated. <laughs> it doesn't have to be gamay. It doesn't have, you know, you can make natural wine from any fucking grape on the planet. Yeah, that was one of my earlier questions that I that I did not present. And it was, and, and, I, and I refrained from asking because I presumed it's too broad of a, of a response, but what, what varietals of grapes are most commonly used in the natural wine movement? But then I assume that based on what country you're in, it, it varies dramatically. Exactly. Yeah. We can say that the natural wine movement started with Gamay, the natural wine moved up into the Loire Valley with Chenin Blanc and on the red side, um, Cabernet Franc. Um, and then when, once it moved to Italy, fuck man, all bets are off. Same with it, um, same with Spain, um, especially the United States. I mean, we drank a white Zinfandel, you know, like the idea of Zinfandel being a natural wine is so contrary to the thought pattern of anyone in this universe, but it happened. Yeah. I still can't wrap my head around the fact that that's a white Zinfandel, but yeah, that's, it's probably the best white Zinfandel I've ever had. Uh, hands down. Although I do remember having a really good one at um, this wacky little uh, Thai place in Venice Beach um, that my friend Travis brought me to. It's this, um, it's a Thai restaurant whose specialty is natural wine. They have like Brilliant. 60 at least, probably more now, um, wines and they're all natural wines and they're like completely geeked out about it and and I remember we started we started with a white zen, and then we had like six other bottles um, between a relatively limited number of us, and we were uh, doing so responsibly. We did take an Uber, but uh, it was a really fantastic um, evening, and that was kind of my first my first real deep foray into natural wine because I tasted them, you know, here and there, and always enjoyed them, but I never had the chance to just have. A plethora of them and from my face to just kind of hand pick and and try and and as one should we went with the server's recommendations um and they they gave us some really remarkable stuff and it was it was fantastic um but this i want it and i want to try other wines that they're doing because it, it always fascinates me when somebody in an industrial setting can actually create things of beauty um, through, you know, the proper ethos and, and production methods. That's cool. It's yeah. really, really neat. Um, yeah. So where were we? Well, we're, we're, we're wrapping up with that beauty. Um, can I see that again? This is, so this is called Volvoretta and it's V-O-L-V-O-R-E-T-A. I encourage you to look this one up for sure as well. What what can you tell the people about Tinta de Toro? So Tinta de Toro is red from the Toro uh, region. And um, in Spain, the Tempranillo grape is all over. Um, in this region, it's called Tinta de Toro. In Rioja, it's called Tempranillo. Um, I'm trying to think of a another region that Aragones 
via uh, Tempranillo in uh, Salamanca. Um, yeah. So good paella wine. Yes, great paella wine. <laughs> great rabbit wine. Yes, when you're dealing with uh, Valencia paella, you would have the rabbit and the snail. But I could see this working with like seafood paella even as well. And or, fuck, there's, I could see this working with so many different things. Chocolate as well. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we have some dark chocolate with uh, pumpkin. And we have some dark chocolate with... Uh, Almond. Oh, hit that. Mm. Hell yeah. Why don't we? I'm going to go into my secret storage den that's deep underground in a mystical cave that's guarded by Carthusian monks that are retired that now wear knight costumes and carry giant swords to protect my stash. I'm gonna go see what type of dessert wines I have and I'm gonna bring something. In the meantime, if you wanna chat about, uh, well, actually, before I step away, what are three, important side notes or takeaways that you wanna leave with people as a, as a general, um, how-to guide in navigating the world of natural wine. Um, some things that you could, you could inspire your average Joe in, in how, to, how to find things that are gonna resonate with their palate and um, accommodate them. Yeah, um, so first and foremost, know that you, know, you can find a natural wine in your price point. You can find a natural wine that's going to fit your flavor profile and your palate across the board and it's okay not to like some of them it's okay to not like orange wine it's okay to not like funky super natty pet nets it's okay to develop your palate as you will and experience a number of things across the board but as as you're as you're on this journey and definitely look at it as a journey you know Find a producer that you like and then explore in that producer or find a region and explore in that region and, and give it a, give it a go. Um, if you want to start off super, super light, super into the, the natural wine uh, world, something we didn't talk about was Austria. Austria in 1985 had a glycol um, recall. And some of their winemakers were adding glycol to their, their wines to make them richer and have more of a viscosity to them. And everything was recalled. There were huge fines passed out. And then immediately the, uh, the government, the Austrian government said that nothing can be added or taken away from wine. Nothing could be ever, um, just no additives. So if you want to start off easy peasy, lemon squeezy kind of a thing, start off with Austria. Go, go uh, for a little Gruner, go for a little bit of this, go for a little bit of that and kind of see where your palate lies and don't be intimidated. Just go, just go for it. I guess that wasn't three or that might've been 10, but <laughs> somewhere in between. Well, before we, uh, before we close, I would like to, um, 
I would like to taste one. Well, we might go a few more. I mean, we still have, uh, we planned on going for, what time is it? Is it six or is it five? Did, did we go two hours, Tony? Holy shit, we went two hours. That's remarkable. We have gone two hours. Well, you know, people can always pause, they can always walk away, and they can return, right? I think that's right. Yeah, so let's just continue this little sensory voyage. I pulled out a Manzanilla sherry that you actually have the fortune of representing here in Colorado. And uh, why don't you talk a little bit about what makes a Manzanilla? And this, of course, comes about because we were talking about things from near the sea. So how apropos yep. to pull out this baby. So I, first, first and foremost, I want to say that this is a very unnatural wine. In <laughs> yeah. The respect that this wine is one fortified, but two, the mm. natural part, if you will, comes from aging under floor. And in San Lucar, um, San Lucar has this interesting location of being right next to where the Guilacavia River comes into the um, Atlantic Ocean. And because of that, you have high um, humidity and the humidity interacts and feeds the floor. So you have a very thick level of this microbiological growth on top of the barrels. What the floor does is it eats, chews away. It, it basically picks apart the bones. Think of the wine as a chicken. It picks apart all of the bones and leaves you with just the base and this skeleton of what Palomino used to be is so beautiful and so exceptional and so salty and so briny. Yeah, man. I mean, so autolytic and so all of these, all of these aromas and flavors. I want, I want fresh cracked oysters and like any kind, you know, you, you're mentioning, um, sardines grilled with lemon this would just any be any type of seafood oh, good god um, one of my favorite things to do is on my way home after having a monsonia day is hit great britain fish and chips and pick up fish and chips and sit in my car and eat fish and chips and drink this <laughs> that is awesome i i bet this would be you know what you could even if you want to be really decadent you could use this in lieu of vinegar for the fucking fries can yeah. you imagine yeah that would be insane um well why don't you this well you, you talked a little bit about this house but can you talk a little just about la cigarera and what makes us such a a lovely sherry house yeah so la cigarera because of where it's positioned makes when we talk about sherry we talk about and we can we could do an entire episode on this which we will yes um but when we talk about terroir we talk about proximity to the ocean we talk about how the ventanas or the windows are positioned towards the ocean, towards the breeze. And La Cigarera is right in town, like right on the ocean. And because of that proximity, they have the thickest floor. Um, La Cigarera is a little bit of an homage, a little uh, head nod to the cigarreras. And the cigarreras were these women um, who would stroll uh, the, the streets. And there, there are two things that you have in all port cities, which are what? 
In all port cities, uh, prostitutes and sailors? That was going to be the two that, yes. <laughs> so these cigarreras would sell cigarettes and perhaps other carnal pleasures uh, to the sailors. And this is kind of an homage to, to them. And Manzanilla. It, the salty vaginas. This, this, is, this is it. This is so salty. <laughs> I'm unfamiliar, but yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, this re it reminds me, um, I was at a very upper crest whiskey tasting many, many years ago. And every, it was very formal. Everybody was in tuxes or gowns. And uh, I was in my um, formal Highland attire pouring whiskeys. And um, this fellow came in and uh, he was a little bit of a buffoon. But of course, you know, given my role as a brand ambassador, I couldn't uh, insinuate that. I had to go along with his um, antics. His antics. And he walks up to me and uh, says, I'm a bourbon drinker. Uh, this is my first time drinking scotch, so I'm relying on you to guide me accordingly. I said, okay, well, what can I interest you in? Well, what's the flavor differences? I said, well, what exactly do you normally like in a whiskey? What type of aromas and flavors do you typically go for? And he said, I like something that tastes like pussy literally what this bozo said to me and of course he was trying to shock me he was trying to throw of me course, off my yeah, game yeah. Yeah. and i didn't even bat an eye i just nodded and i said freshly manicured out of the shower pussy or straight from the gym pussy and he said straight from the gym so i reached over and i pulled a particular west coast single malt whiskey that has a very salty briny character gentle notes of white pepper a little bit of fresh um sea breeze in the nose and uh, just a, a gorgeous whiskey something that i really enjoy with oysters and fuck i'll say what it is it's talisker one of my one of my favorite whiskeys to this day the the lovely beautiful talisker from the mind-blowingly gorgeous isle of sky and uh i didn't know how this guy was going to respond because i knew he was a bourbon guy and he probably never had a whiskey of this complexity on his palate and I poured it for him and I was really waiting for some other, you know, idiotic remark. He took a sip and he looked at me like, like I had just given him the Holy grail in the glass and he nodded like, like I just, you know, solved world, you know, world peace or something and, or, or, or created world peace. He looked at me with the most immense satisfaction ever nodded his head, raised his glass up to me and walked away. And, and I'll never forget that because of all the hundreds of events I did, I never had some idiot come up and tell me that he wanted a whiskey that tasted like human genitals, but. <laughs> oh shit. Anyway, th that, this takes me back because this does have, if you like Talisker folks, you owe it to yourself to pull to pick up some La Cigarilla Manzanilla because this has all of those lovely, natural, salty aromas. There's a little hint of salt even in the palate. Um, and something that would go really, really well with um, like butter poached seafood as well because the butter, uh, this the, the, the acidic structure of this would cut right through it. And um, God, it just lends itself toward a lot of different um, fun shit in the kitchen. So 
that is the uh, La Segaria Manzanilla. And um, we should have a taste of one more thing before we, before we log off and uh, dig into some of the food spread that I um, put forth here. And uh, I just randomly pulled out this goza that is uh, brewed with coriander and salt to kind of keep with this, yeah, yeah, this, yeah. this uh, aesthetic that we are exploring. Well, and with the goza, you're going to get that, obviously the salt because it's brewed with salt, but the whole point of goza is the, uh, the Britannomyces and that style of beverage. And this is produced by the Bavarischer uh, Bonhoff Brewery. And please forgive me, my German friends, for desecrating that. Um, Liebjiger Goza. Um, and I believe this came from my, my buddy Tommy and my business partner at Fens Manor. I think this is from him. I'm not sure. It probably is. <laughs> so cheers to you tommy if you ever listen to the podcast fucker um let's raise a glass let's raise a glass to tommy chin chin oh my god man so you first first aroma out the gate is just that sour um cedar or not cedar sour cider like aroma that traditional hint of Britannomyces. Not as much coriander as I was hoping, but, but that might throw some people off. Um, but I, I think it's a lovely beer. Mm -hmm. Great beer, great sour characteristics, but not too sour. Some yeah. of those right now on the market are a little too sour for me and for my palate. You know, I mean, we, especially in the beer world and especially in the natural wine world, there was this instant rush for how natural how can we get how IPA can we get? How sour can we get our sours? And, you know, of course you have to have this pendulum swing and you have to go all the way to the point of no return before you can come back. And, and now I think we're on our way back and we're understanding the, uh, the inherent differences of, of sour. And we're understanding the inherent differences of Britannomyces and hops and how everything kind of plays into sour beers, natural wines, and, and this genre. Absolutely. Yeah. This has been a, a really great journey of the senses, if you will, today. Um, great beer. And then to give you a, a wee dram to enjoy alongside your beer, I have gone with I think it's only apropos, the Talisker Distiller's Edition. Um, this is one that I have not had in a long time, and it's double matured. Oh, good God, that's lovely. In, uh, in, uh... Smile, this is the first time I'm tasting pussy. <laughs> <laughs> We're just posing for a photo. <laughs> so this is aged initially in bourbon casks. Um, I would wager around 10 years or so. And then it comes out and is anywhere from six months to two years in Amoroso sherry casks. And the original Talisker has a lot of white pepper, a lot of brine. Um, but when you put it in the sherry cask, it kind of gives this- Sweetens it up. It yeah. It out. Like a salty toffee. Mm -hmm. Very much so. 
you pull a lot of those nutty characteristics oh. from the from the sherry into that as as the backbone. Man, that's a beauty. That's delicious. That really is beautiful. Um, I think this is a good way for someone who is more accustomed to a sweeter, more floral Highland uh, or Speyside malts. Um, this particular one, uh, we're trying to do a technical damage here as we're speaking. Um, one of the mics is falling off the table. But uh, anyway, the, the, the sweetness, like Tony was alluding to, makes us much more uh, alluring to kind of dive into as somebody who's not typically accustomed to the more, the more peaty styles of whiskey that one encounters from the coast in Scotland. And uh, good God, man, this just, um, this would be really great with the, the gray chocolate sea salt over there, chocolate. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, one of my fondest memories when I worked with uh, Diageo as one of the masters of whiskey, we, we went to the, the distillery one day and I was bringing a, a group of distributors with me and we were running late. We were trying to get all the way from Dawany, which is in the heart of the Highlands, up in the mountains to, um, to the Isle of Skye. And traffic was crazy getting there. And so we were running a little late. Everybody was hungry on the bus. We didn't have a chance to stop. We called the distillery, asked if they could pause the tasting for a bit um, until we went into town and grabbed some fish and chips or some quick sandwich or something before we got into the tasting. Because obviously we didn't want to do an in-depth tasting on an empty stomach. No. And the distiller, Charlie said, oh, don't worry about it. We figured you'd be a, a wee bit hungry. So we made some sandwiches for you. Come on in. And so I was expecting to find some little silly tea sandwiches, you know, and, but whatever, I, I didn't care as long as I had something to coat my stomach. Um, boy, was I wrong. We walked in and there was like an entire salmon on the table, surrounded by langoustines, surrounded by um, uh, giant oysters and uh, God, something else. I can't even remember what it was. But, and then lined with all these different expressions of Talisker. And he just kind of bowed and said, enjoy yourselves, I'll be back. And we, we got to sit down and just at our leisure, explore all these different marks of Talisker paired with seafood straight from their water source. That's one of my favorite pairings of all time is scotch, especially, you know, coastal scotch and seafood. Yes. Because it's, you don't think about it, but it makes so much sense, especially when it's, Scotch and oysters, sign me the fuck up. I am ready for that all day long. And I don't think there's anyone in the world who can do more magic with salmon than the Scots. Yeah. I mean, they know what the hell they're doing with that fish and it's glorious. And another like revolutionary moment for me was we're sitting there enjoying the food and the sweet woman comes in with this little tea kettle and she walks up and says, would you like a bit of Talisker with your oysters? And in all candidness here, I did not even like oysters at this point. I, I had oysters when I was a child, tried to swallow them. Yeah, it yeah. came right back up. Yeah. It was one of those things I was like, fuck that. I'm never touching them again. Yeah. I had them cooked a few times, but I vowed I would never have raw oysters. 
but I loved Talisker so much. And I'm at the distillery. This lovely lady is offering to pour the Talisker over the oysters. And I figure if that's what they do here, then damn it, it's gotta be legit. Let's try it. And that was an aha moment for me because I slurped up the oyster with the Talisker drizzled over it. And that's something that I did many, many, many times at many, many, many dinners that I hosted. And it was always revolutionary for people participating in that. Um, And God, if, if those of you who love hiking, who love nature, who love the outdoors, who, who love whiskey, who love fishing, who love seafood, you definitely, definitely owe it to yourself to go to the Isle of Skye one day. It's one of the most remarkable, beautiful places I've seen in the world. And if I could open an inn there tomorrow with a fucking whiskey bar, I'd be gone. That's how much I, I love that place. But that's not going to happen. Maybe in my next life. But that's how much I love the Isle of Skye. I can't say enough positive things about it. And there used to only be Talisker. Now there's a couple other amazing distilleries there uh, who I had the fortune of visiting last year. So some good things happening on Sky, but I'll always hold Talisker near and dear to my heart. Um, And by the way, kudos to you, Barracuda, my dear homie from Texas, who had many, many, many late night business sessions with me and limitless bottles of Talisker. Love you, miss you. Hope we can raise a glass with you and your handsome lad soon. Um, Take care and uh, be in touch, girl. I hope you're checking this out from time to time. So back to you, Tony. Um, You need a little more of this Talisker. Yeah, sure. Splash me up. Um, I, uh, yeah, the cork got screwed up and is in here. So we may not have any choice but to finish this entire bottle. Would be the worst thing. No. You know, the Russians, when they drink, when they open bottle of vodka, no one leaves table until the entire bottle is complete. So we need to call Joey and have him come over. He can help us, actually. Yes. He lives nearby. We should do that. All right. Well, guys, you're probably done hearing our little whimsical banter together. Um, I want to thank everybody for um, tuning into this. Uh, Tony is somebody who I have a great deal of respect for. Uh, in addition to the fact that I just like the motherfucker, but he knows a lot about wine. And I don't know anybody in the world who, who is more uh, knowledgeable about the category of sherry, something that I love beyond measure and tragically don't know really shit about. So I look forward to more drinking sessions with him to learn a little bit more about sherry. I mean, I know more than your average Joe, but that's not saying a lot because this is a very broad, diverse category that I've only really skimmed the surface of. And Tony is very competent, very confident in this, this category. So we will do a follow-up episode with him on that. And uh, is there anything else you want to leave with the uh, folks out there, Tony, before we wrap this up? Uh, I guess just on the conversation of natural wine and bringing back to the, the central topic that we started with, natural wine is, is a movement. And as with all movements, see if you can participate and you can participate in more ways than just drinking. You can participate in more ways than just raising a glass. And if you don't like what's in the glass, find a different way to participate and find a different way to, uh, to enjoy what the broad term, the broad conversation of, of enjoying spirits, wine, what have you that have nothing added and nothing taken out of. Amen. 
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to yet another episode. I want to let you know that uh, I've got Rachel McNeil from the Isla Whiskey Academy coming up tomorrow. I'll probably wait a few days to post hers, but uh, looking very forward to speaking with her as well. And I am also going to be speaking with a couple other interesting folks this week, but I'm going to hold that at bay for now. Have a fantastic evening. Thank you for tuning in. Remember to uh, please uh, click like, or not like, I'm sorry. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, subscribe. Click subscribe. And if you have the time to give a review, it certainly helps get the message out there and let people know that this, this little tiny podcast that can do is attempting to do just that. So thank you very much for the support. Um, it's much appreciated. Have a wonderful night and we will see you soon. Take care.